This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 29th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by a guest, Dr. Peter Piat. Dr. Piat, who is also Baron Piat, is the Director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and also the Handa Professor of Global Health. He's been a key player in modern viral epidemics. When he was 27 years old, he was part of the teams that isolated the Ebola virus and controlled the first outbreak in what was then Zaire. He went on to become a leader of the fight against AIDS as president of the International AIDS Society, executive director of UN AIDS, and undersecretary general of the United Nations. He's continued to help the fight against both AIDS and Ebola. And most recently, he was appointed as special advisor to the president of the European Commission on COVID-19. Peter, I understand that along with the expertise you bring in global health and as a virologist, you have a more personal experience with COVID-19. What happened? Well, about uh, four and a half months ago, I got the virus. I mean, I got COVID-19, became ill. What first was like typical flu-like syndrome, but no shortage of breath, particularly it was fever and extreme fatigue, basically. And that was uh, ironically after having spent most of my professional life fighting viruses it was the first time ever I got seriously ill because my situation deteriorated. I was admitted to the hospital with my oxygen saturation was like uh, 83% on admission. And thanks to oxygen, I made it through seven days there. But then the issue started uh, really after I was discharged in the sense that I developed what they call organizing pneumonia or, you know, some kind of interstitial pneumonia post-COVID due to hyperinflammatory response and it illustrated that uh, COVID-19 is far more than either you have a bit of the flu or you end up in intensive care uh, you can die and then they often say oh that's the people who are over 70 and uh, or with pre-existing conditions as if we don't count no there are lots of people in between with this uh, chronic condition and this long tail of in my case pneumonia of atrial fibrillation extreme tachycardia all the time. And so that took about four months, but now I'm fine. I mean, this morning I went jogging five kilometers, uh, but I'm still quite tired. So it certainly changed my perspective on viruses. Peter, I'm interested in that change of perspective. This is something that most people read about in the newspaper, but don't encounter personally, even with a very large number of cases that have occurred. Is there a message for people that you'd like to send out based on your own experiences? Well, first of all, it's something to avoid at all costs. I mean, it's a bit of a lottery uh, in a sense, whether you'll develop a, an asymptomatic infection or serious illness like what I had. Uh, of course, there are risk factors, being old, having diabetes, hypertension, but I didn't have any of these underlying factors. And even young people today can die from it. There are many more and more examples, and that's particularly important to realize now that a lot of the infections are happening in young people. But also it's this long tail. After my story came out, um, among others in the New York Times and Science, I got so many emails of people who said, hey, I've got the same thing. So it's not because it's an epidemic that it's a short-lived type of uh, infection and disease. And I think we will be faced as a medical community also with probably soon hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people ultimately with uh, chronic conditions with uh, long-term sequelae. And my perspective changed in that sense. But also, I think that 
in our communication around this epidemic, certainly in the UK, it was all about flattening the curve and the reproductive rates and protecting the health system, but rarely about people. This is about people. And with so many hundreds of thousands of people dying, this is going to have such an impact. And I think it's important that we are prepared for the, the fallout of chronic illness, mental health issues. And of course, in my particular case, I'm double motivated to defeat this epidemic. Well, we're very happy to have you participating now and back jogging as well. <laughs> For all of the reasons that Peter has just laid out, there's, of course, a great deal of interest in developing a vaccine against COVID-19. And we've been seeing results of some early studies. Many of them show that vaccines can elicit an antibody response that's similar to what you see after recovery from natural infection. And some also induce a T-cell response. We don't know what these responses will mean in terms of protection. Yesterday, in the journal, we published an animal study of one of the candidate vaccines. Before we get into the results of that study, Eric, can you talk about how the journal handled it? So this is a little bit of inside baseball, but we try to protect against conflicts of interest among the editors. We have a special process when an editor submits a research manuscript, him or herself, where it goes to an outside editor whose role is to decide whether or not it should be sent for review, and once reviewed, whether or not it's something we should proceed with publishing eventually. When there are less significant conflicts, however, editors recuse themselves and manuscripts get handled by others. So this particular manuscript was unusual in that both Lindsay and I had conflicts. Lindsay is involved as a trial coordinator in the NIH COVID Prevention Network, which is a group that is, among other things, uh, developing the clinical trials to test a number of vaccines, including the one that was studied here. And I have an academic collaboration with a couple of the authors, although on a completely different subject. So even though that collaboration has nothing to do with COVID-19, we decided that Lindsay and I should have no role in handling this manuscript. So we saw it just before our readers did. So what did you see? What do we learn from the study? Well, I think it's worth starting with the fact that it's an animal trial. And whenever we look at animal trials, which are studies we don't often publish in the journal, it's first important to understand how well that study reproduces the human disease and what can we learn from it. For non-human primates and COVID-19, the answer is mixed. The rhesus and cacs that are used in the study are not particularly susceptible to infection, but they can be infected and the virus can replicate with some evidence of lung inflammation. However, these animals are able to clear the virus in a matter of days and have no apparent sequelae, none of the long-term consequences that Peter described, although we usually don't ask them to jog. Um, so this is different from infections in many humans. Uh, many humans can't clear, obviously, and proceed to more severe disease. And the protocol for infection in this study was quite different from what a human would encounter the animals were infected simultaneously, intranasally and intratracheally, and they received almost a million viral particles. So probably a much higher infectious dose than people received in the course of human-to-human -human transmission. However, immune response among all primates, including us, is similar, so that we think that some of the markers for immune response are going to be similar between the rhesus macaques and humans. And we can look perhaps at the early disease, the early viral replication and the early markers of disease as markers of potential protection in humans, if we can prevent that. And then finally, these animals, unlike 
the experimental mice that are used in many studies, which are inbred and therefore genetically identical, rhesus macaques are outbred animals. They have the genetic diversity that might reflect a little more of the genetic diversity in human populations. So to get to the study, in this study, the animals were vaccinated with either 10 or 100 micrograms of the vaccine that we discussed last week, which is an mRNA nanoparticle vaccine. So it's the exact same vaccine, and it was administered in the same way as in humans, which was at day zero and at day 28. And the 100 microgram dose that they used is the same dose that's going to be used in the advanced human trials, in, in the phase three trials, in fact, that, which have already started. Now, we don't know much about the pharmacology. Obviously, these animals are much smaller than humans, but we don't know what it means to use different amounts. But this is at least similar-ish to what's going to happen in people. The investigators measured a variety of immune responses, including total antibody and neutralizing antibody, and intracellular cytokine measurements on peripheral blood mononuclear cells. They also did a challenge, and this was the most important part of the study, four weeks after the second dose of vaccine, so eight weeks after the first dose of vaccine, they deliberately infected these animals and measured viral shedding and the histopathology. The animals produced very high levels of both total antibody and neutralizing antibody in much the way that we saw in the early phase human trials. And again, as in humans, for the most part, these were much higher than in humans recovering from COVID-19. In addition, the vaccine-induced T-cell responses of the Th1 type, which is the kind of response that we think is probably associated with control of viral replication. Again, this matched what we've seen in the humans, more or less. So the animals, in many ways, recapitulated the immune response that was seen when humans were immunized. So on to the challenge. After the animals were infected, those that received saline had detectable virus either in bronchoalveolar lavage fluid two days after challenge or in nasopharyngeal swabs for most of them. Uh, while this was much more difficult to detect in the vaccinated animals, for example, if you looked at bronchoalveolar lavage, only one of eight animals in each of the vaccine groups had detectable virus as opposed to all eight of the control animals. By day seven, all of the animals, including the control animals, had stopped shedding virus at either site. But the total amount of virus shed, looking at days two and four, were much lower in the vaccinated groups than in the control animals. And, and as a result, the control animals exhibited mild to moderate inflammation in small airways and alveoli, while there was a little or no inflammation detectable after viral challenge in the high-dose vaccine. So with all of that, what are the implications for the control of human disease? Well, that's the million-dollar question. In fact, it's the billion-dollar question. Um, this is better than the alternative. It certainly is encouraging that we can protect animals. And I think it is promising with several caveats that, that we can discuss. And those include the timing of infection. So this was done one month shortly after a vaccination. So how persistent it will be, uh, we don't know. The pharmacology, this was a higher dose relative to the body weight of these animals than will be used in humans. So is that going to be enough? We don't know. And then finally, whether the magnitude of the immune response really is going to correlate so well in humans as it seems to do in the rhesus macaques. I think that what's encouraging also from my perspective is the cellular immune response. In the media and so on, there's a lot of talk about 
people losing IgG and so on, but that may be pretty irrelevant when we talk about protective immunity and certainly for vaccine development. And in this case, also the particular case for coronaviruses is the absence of the type 2 helper T-cell response, because we want a vaccine that's not only that works, protective, but also that's absolutely safe. And one of the theoretical risks based on other coronavirus experimental vaccines is indeed vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory syndrome or enhanced immune-induced infection. So uh, that is, uh, I think, encouraging. But as Eric said, I mean, uh, we'll have to wait in any case for human trials that will look at the same issues. But overall, we can say, okay, we can move to the next phase. And that's encouraging also because there are some other vaccines that show fairly similar type of uh, responses in non-human primates. Agreed. And I think it's very tricky to extrapolate from the preclinical models to the clinical. The immune system really is species-specific, and viruses really adapt to transmission in different species. So I think the animal models are incredibly helpful and informative, but it's very difficult to make that jump to what the clinical outcome is likely to be. And Peter, I... uh, the point that you made that's really important is we've seen in natural infection that there may be waning antibody. There may be waning antibody in vaccine recipients, but is protection really dependent on antibody circulating at the time, or may there be immunologic priming and memory and the Th1 cells and certain types of the T cell axis may turn out to be more important in ameliorating future disease. And that is something that we'll only know in time as we understand what happens in our brethren across the planet in people. But these preclinical, these NHP data, I think, are very interesting. But I agree. Until we have the clinical data, we're making certain assumptions about translatability. I do want to stress the huge advantage of an animal model, which is that we can do challenge. And it gives us some confidence in the vast amount of resources that are going to be invested in a phase three trial in humans. It's certainly better than nothing. People have discussed doing human challenge studies with SARS-CoV-2. And the bottom line is those are not going to go forward in the near future and probably even in the medium future because there are many obstacles to pursuing that strategy. So right now, this is what we've got. And it's the best we've got. So I think we have to recognize all of the limitations that we've all discussed. And yet it is an encouraging note for deciding that we're going to go put people at risk of getting this vaccine in trials. I don't want to diminish the importance of the animal challenge model. And I agree, Eric, that in a animal challenge model, you know the virus you know the date and time of inoculation, you know the quantity of virus, you know the route. There are all sorts of parameters that are tightly controlled that allow us to define the biology elicited. So I agree, it's very important. The challenge is the jump to clinical applicability. And we need all tools and all information we can generate. Yeah, I agree. I think sometimes also Correlates of protection can be distilled from this kind of experiments, although, again, it's not perfect and extrapolating from one species to another is always tricky. And there are enough examples in history, you know, where that didn't work. But overall, uh, you know, take the counterfactual. If the experiment would have shown no neutralizing antibody, no cellular immune response, etc., then we would have said, hmm, 
this may not be uh, worthwhile looking at it from that perspective. Can we extrapolate it all from the results of this study to what will happen with other vaccine candidates? Steve, I think an important part of that question gets to Peter's last point about correlates of protection. If the antibody levels and or T-cell responses that we see in this, which we know are elicited by at least some of the other vaccine candidates in humans, are markers for protection, then this is a good sign for any vaccine that produces a similar immune response. And I strongly suspect that that is true, that somewhere in that immune response is something that marks protective immunity. And we know that some of the other candidates look very similar in terms of what they can induce. Now, a more difficult extrapolation is to some of the other vaccine candidates that have been published or presented that induce different types of immunity, either lower antibody levels, higher T cell responses, or different qualities of response. And I think it's harder to say whether or not we learn anything about those candidates. And I agree, Eric. I think that the correlates of protection may be construct dependent as opposed to universally protective parameters. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. But also the way to compare various constructs and various platforms for vaccines is to have head-to-head comparison. But that's not yet in the pipeline, you know. Let's first find whether some individual candidate vaccines actually protect and are safe. But I totally agree with you, Lynch, that it could be construct-specific. And that's going to be also really important for not only designing vaccination strategies and and for which populations and so on, because thinking of the elderly, for example, um, populations where the correlates of protection may be imperfect or we have to adapt them. But also we may go to a situation where, um, you know, what's the evidence that someone was vaccinated? Because we're going to go to societies living with COVID. So this is a really long-term issue. It's still only at the beginning of one, to try to control the current waves, but secondly, how to integrate vaccination into in our lives and, and in societies living with COVID. So these are all very important questions that go way beyond this uh, non-human primate experiments. And Peter, you mentioned that obviously head-to-head comparisons would be the best way to see which is best. What about combination approaches? You know, the presumption is a vaccine might work, but maybe it kind of works. And if the right combination, it could really work. How do we think about that problem? No, I'm glad you raised that. First of all, I mean, looking at since um, a lot of my life was on HIV, and it's really once we started looking at combination therapy, but then also combination prevention. And uh, I think that's what we probably will have to go to. It could be several vaccines. It could be a vaccine plus, for example, for outbreaks, a prophylactic use of, let's say, monoclonal antibodies or antivirals. And we will have to continue to have some behavioral change. Probably shaking hands is gone forever. And wearing a a face mask when you have a cold or, you know, you're coughing or whatever, should become the societal norm, like it is in Japan, for example, for the last 100 years. So um, we'll need some baseline type of cultural change because that's it's cultural and some social distancing in some way. But um, but even on the, the biomedical side, 
we probably need to think of combinations and we're not there yet. And, and I certainly think that's for when we go into therapy. It's clear that it's not just going to be killing the virus. I mean, as an infectious disease person, you know, you always say, kill the bug. Uh, no, it's a bit more complicated here. We need to also modulate and deal with the immune response. So, Peter, looking at vaccines in particular, what do you see as the challenges going forward, not just for testing, but also for producing and getting a vaccine out to the population at large? Yeah, well, we already mentioned, uh, first of all, you need to prove it works, it protects. And here the questions will be, how well does it protect? I don't expect that any of the candidates now, the first wave, will protect 100%. You never know, but uh, that would be pretty rare, particularly for a respiratory infection. And will it protect from infection, so sterilizing kind of, or, and or of disease severity and mortality? When you take influenza vaccines, and I know it's a very different virus, but in a good season, you, know, you get 70% protection, and it's mostly from morbidity and mortality. Secondly, as we, we talked about potential side effects, so it has to be absolutely safe. And that often requires far larger denominators, far larger populations to find out what it is. But think of this, this vaccine or these vaccines will have to be given to billions of people. So even a very tiny percentage or 0.01 or whatever percentage of a severe adverse effect could affect lots of people, hundreds of thousands. So that's going to be really important also in terms of inspiring confidence. And then thirdly, manufacturing as you mentioned, Steve. Again, this has never been done. Vaccines that are produced at billions of doses, at least hundreds of millions, and just a detail, but there aren't enough vials to put the vaccines in in the world, billions of vials. So I've been going to meetings where we were discussing vials and capsules and syringes and all that, where I thought it was about vaccine manufacturing. The good news is that all major vaccine manufacturers and developers are actually now trying to boost in a big way their manufacturing capacity. So, And there is money going into it from BADA, from the European Union, uh, in several countries. And then fourth, there is access. Here, I'm very concerned about what we could call vaccine nationalism. Uh, you know, vaccines produced in my country are only for my people. And there are very few countries that are actually manufacturing vaccines. This is very different business than pharmaceuticals. Uh, where you've got really enormous number of companies. So we need to make sure that there is some equitable access. And for example, um, in the EU, there are, like in the US, deals are being made, negotiations, or advanced market commitments, and so on with companies. But in each case, the deal includes a certain percentage that will go to low-income countries. And also with COVAX, which is a coalition of countries, and the Gates and the Wellcome Trust, and it's led by uh, Gavi and uh, CEPI, the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, is trying to develop, let's say, a buyer's club and making sure that there is access. And then the last point is then, will people accept it? We shouldn't assume that uh, people just welcome with open arms vaccines. We know that there is a growing percentage of people who don't like vaccines for whatever reasons. And some recent data that I saw uh, from surveys showed, for example, in Europe that in the UK, 14% of people have said that they will definitely not accept and go for a vaccine against COVID. In France, it's even 25%. And in the US, it's even higher, some populations. So we need to start working also on all these things from logistics to communication to 
building a constituency, because can you imagine that we would have the vaccine and it's safe and, and so on and, and, and it works, and then we don't have the systems to distribute it, access, and people would say, get lost, I don't want your vaccine. And there's a lot of paranoia about that, conspiracy theories, and it's often about something else. But the fact is that we as health professionals, we really need to already incorporate that into our planning today, not wait until it explodes in our face. Peter, can I ask you about two paradigms of vaccine? Getting to your last point, one is in the Ebola outbreaks where there has been a lot of resistance, a lot of suspicion around vaccination, and yet there has been fair success in vaccinating in ring vaccination during outbreaks. And the other is yellow fever, where there's actually a pass where you have to have the yellow fever vaccine in order to even be allowed in certain countries, and everyone has their little yellow card. Are there things we can learn from either of those that will help? Yes, Eric, I think that in the first place that we need to work already during the trial phase, we need to work with communities, we try to understand what people's concerns are. Like for Ebola in Sierra Leone, uh, the London School we were very active, we did trials, but at the same time, we had a major community engagement that included also religious leaders and so on, and that worked out quite well. But if you get into a conflictual situation, for example, in Congo, where you know there's an armed conflict, where there is a major opposition between those in power and those in this case in Eastern Congo, the effect, that is far more difficult to manage. But the bottom line is, we should not look at vaccine acceptance and confidence as an add-on, as something that we should bring in some communicators and social scientists when we have a problem, we need to anticipate it. Yellow fever is, a, I think the biggest issue with yellow fever is there are only four producers in the whole world. It's also a vaccine that can have some serious adverse effects. And it's really something that I think where we need both some R&D, so some easier vaccines that can be developed in a more efficient way, uh, it's still like for influenza using egg-based technology and so on. Uh, when you look at it, that hasn't changed from the first vaccines that were made against yellow fever, although there is an alternative available now. But it is really to make sure that the infrastructure is there and working with the community. It's always the same thing. So there's no time to lose to start working on these issues now because I think there is a very, very reasonable case that we will have one or more vaccines that are effective, unlike something that has been involved with, like HIV, where after, what is it now, uh, nearly 40 years, or well, 35 years, we still don't have one, although there's, uh, I think, some good progress. And the big reason is that in uh, COVID-19, we can clear the virus in a natural way. So our immune system is equipped and it's possible. And all the initial results are encouraging. Uh, so we need to prepare for it right now and invest some money in it. It's not mega bucks like for the development of a vaccine or a manufacturing, but it has to be done. Peter, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your own personal experiences as well as your expertise. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, Eric, Lindsay.